Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, good morning again. Good to see you guys here. Join me in Matthew 24. While you're turning, we're going to do another giveaway. Uh, At the outset of this series, I told you that something as complicated as the end of the age and the second coming of Jesus, the the sheer amount of scholarship involved in that, and some of you are going to want to dive deeper than others and get deep in the weeds and stay there, and we just can't do that in a venue like this, but what we can do is provide you some great resources, and one of those we're going to give away today, as well as commend to all of you, this is a commentary on the book of Revelation. It's compiled by Steve Gregg. Uh, He's a theologian from Oregon, and he brought together essentially uh, scholars from a variety of perspectives. And so when we've been talking about these different millennial views, for example, uh, or different ways that people understand uh, certain kinds of things in Revelation, it's apocalyptic. What historically are the, are the various ways that, that people, all of whom love Jesus, all of whom believe the Bible and love it, they just kind of see things a little bit differently. How do they understand this? And so the end result is this volume, which provides every single major view side by side. It's otherwise called a parallel commentary. So I would commend it to any of you who want to dive a little bit deeper. Some of the terms I'm going to use today, like a preterist understanding or a futurist or a historicist understanding of Revelation, uh, those are explained in here. And as we move verse by verse through the text of Revelation, you're going to see that utilized here and explained from all of those various perspectives. So you get a very objective overview of what this means. Again, I commend it to all of you, but we're going to give it away today to four of you, two in this service, two in the next one. Same deal with this book as I did with the last one. If you're the kind of individual that doesn't want to know that much about it and you win it, win it anyway, I'm not going to be the least bit offended for you to take it and the foyer, hold it up and say, I got a free book. I guarantee you'll make a new friend. All right. There's another nerd in here like me. But if you are a nerd like me, you're going to enjoy this. And the winners in this service are Debbie Brent and Brian Fluharty. So congratulations, guys. And all the nerds are like, yeah, or they're going, that should have been me. That should have been me. So I I hope you've enjoyed this series. Uh, We're now down to the last couple of weeks of this. It's intriguing. Prophecy's intriguing because prophecy's complex. And complexity, things that perplex us, things that sometimes confuse us, the human mind doesn't typically like that. We prefer things to be simple. Uh, the, The Word of God doesn't, unfortunately, make those things simple for us, but that makes it intriguing for us. And today, as we look at Matthew 24, I just want to warn you in advance, we are looking at what is possibly the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament. It is most certainly the most difficult passage in Matthew's gospel, and that's true for a number of reasons. First of all, Jesus is using somewhat unfamiliar language here, and he's mixing genres. As he speaks, he uses a combination of what we call the prophetic 
as well as what we call the apocalyptic. And if some of you are probably thinking, well, aren't those the same thing? Well, no, they're not. And, and that actually adds to the confusion. There's certainly overlap. There is employment of apocalyptic language sometimes in, in communicating the prophetic, but they're two different things. The prophetic deals with actual predictions about what's coming out in the future. The apocalyptic, while sometimes referring to the future, really is more defined in terms of unveiling things that are not entirely clear. And so they're not the same. And Jesus sometimes is switching back and forth between those means of employment here. And it makes it a little bit more difficult for us to get our heads around. Doesn't mean we can't get something from this. It just means we have to admit that this is a little bit difficult. Secondly, Jesus doesn't make chronological distinctions. So the things that he's describing here don't necessarily happen one after the other and then after the other. Uh, one example of that was just in our, a recent movie night that we had. There was a movie called 1517 to Paris. Anybody seen it? It's about these three American heroes, military vets who are in Europe, and they, they just sort of incidentally are there on a train when a terrorist seeks to attack, and they're seeking to thwart that attack. Uh, it, it really is a great story of heroism, but I have to admit, I had to push the pause button, and I had to back up several times, because if you've ever seen that movie, you know it's not in chronological order, and they keep switching back to their childhood, and, which is not that confusing. They're like, okay, they're little boys in here, so I know this is in the past. But then they switch back to earlier sections in their adulthood when they were touring different parts of Europe, and you don't know exactly where you are in the timeline, and, and it can make things confusing. That is really what's happening here. The future that Jesus describes reads a little bit like that. And because of those first two realities, there's not really a solid consensus among biblical scholars as to the precise meaning of several things that we're going to read here. In fact, the more study that's done and the deeper students of Scripture get into this text, the more debate seemingly arises. And so generally speaking, there's four schools of thought around how to view not just Matthew 24, but the whole of, of prophetic literature. This really would apply to the book of Revelation, more so than the gospel of Matthew. But Matthew, especially this section of it, has been looked at in four different ways. And, and just by way of introduction, I want you to see those schools of thought and, and what they mean, because you, you, you're going to have to make a call here somewhere along the way. The first one is called preterism. And the preterist school says that Jesus is speaking solely about things that are coming in the immediate future of his disciples. So the preterist would read Matthew 24 and say, there's really nothing here that's describing anything in our own day. To them, what Jesus predicts is going to happen has already happened, and it's all been fulfilled and will be fulfilled by the time of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. Now, the most well-known advocate of this position is a guy by the name of R.C. Sproul. A godly Presbyterian theologian. I've learned much from him over the years. He's been in heaven now for about three years. Is he right? I don't think so. Are you sure? Not really. You see how this goes? All right, a little bit of confusion. So, so hang with me here, all right? So preterism, it's all in the past. Second school of thought is futurism, which is precisely the opposite of preterism. Most, if not all, of this passage describes things that, even from my own perspective in history, are entirely in the future and yet to come, all right? So preterism, it's all in the past. Futurism, it's nearly all in the future. Thirdly, there's something called historicism. Now, this view says the prophecy is a pre-written record of the entire course of history from the time of the first century 
up until the end of the world. The thing with historicism, because I like historicism, sometimes I think myself a historicist until I look at the way theologians who adopted this view still kind of felt it necessary to put a one-to-one correspondence on all of these things. This is what the reformers did. They believe it correlated to the wider history of the church and not merely to their own time. That's historicism. Idealism. This is the, the, the belief that prophetic teaching is a dramatic presentation of transcendent spiritual realities that lie behind world events and which occur in cycles throughout history. And after 30 years of studying the Bible and texts like this, this is where I tend to land. Um, I think those words, just like those of John in, in Revelation, are more of a panoramic description of repeated cycles of historical moments, both from in Jesus' own time, his immediate future, but also from our own. So am I right? Probably. Could I be wrong? Sure I could be, but probably not. Well, I'll be okay if I discover that I'm wrong, if I get to heaven. And Jesus says, yeah, Rainy, you missed that one, like by a mile. Yeah, I'll be fine with it. I'll be fine. And that's kind of my point here. It's all right to study these issues. It's good that we look into this. It's good that we stand on the shoulders of people that have come before us, that are smarter than we are, that, that you know, it's one of the reasons that resources like this are very important. Uh, there's a long line of people between Jesus and your grandmother, and what they believe mattered. And it probably influences you more than you think it does. And, and that's part of the point. It's okay to do that. It's okay to have an opinion, even a strong one. And it's fine even to be confident in that opinion. But if the last 2,000 years of faithful Christian scholarship has taught us anything, it has taught us that on this issue, some humility is in order. Some understanding, some deference toward each other. And so when you get to the point that you know what you know about eschatology and everybody around you is a heretic or their teaching is harmful, you no longer have confidence, you have hubris. All right? Scripture calls that pride. Don't mistake pride for confidence. Be humble. And, and so I, here's how I'm going to lay it out for you. There's a chart coming up here. You're going to see a real quick glance at it. And so if you're, like, if you're one of those people like, oh my goodness, I want that, it's going to be in the show notes on the website and on the podcast once we get all this published. You can go, you can download it right to your phone if you want to, okay? But you can kind of see, all right, like for example, false Christ. If you believe it was fulfilled by 70 AD, then it's going to be all those Jewish prophets who predicted that God would deliver Jews from Rome, if you think it's a final fulfillment, you probably see it as something like Antichrist who deceives many by his words and deeds. War, famine, earthquakes. Well, Rome had multiple wars and famines during the reign of Claudius, which came very quickly after Jesus read these words. But we also know that we still live in the middle of that, and so maybe it's all right to see that as somewhat of a future thing too. And so as I look at all of that, my question is, why not all of the above? Like, why is it that we've got to pick a lane and stick in it? And I think that's a worthy question because of the way that Jesus expresses himself here. All right, this is part of what's called the Olivet Discourse because he's seated on the Mount of Olives. And there's a little history that precedes this that, that probably helps inform us as to the, the nature of the discussion that's going on between he and his disciples. He's just finished a couple of really hard tasks. He has, for one, excoriated the Pharisees and the scribes for their legalism and their spiritual oppression. He has wept bitterly over Jerusalem and the future he knows is coming to that city because of the obstinance of God's people. And he has now taken the road from Jerusalem toward Bethany, but they've stopped at this spot on the Mount of Olives that incidentally has a gorgeous view of Solomon's temple. So if you can imagine Jesus, all of his disciples, and he selects 
providentially, no doubt, this one spot to sit where they can just look out and see this gorgeous vista with Solomon's temple, the second temple, in the foreground. And it's while they're looking at that vista that Jesus says something shocking in verse 2. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now can you imagine how stunned the disciples might have been by something like that? And they assume, no doubt, that he's talking not just about the destruction of the temple, not just about the destruction of Jerusalem, they would kind of assume that he was talking about the end of the world. In fact, we just commemorated a day yesterday, a very significant milestone in our own country, did we not, that, that makes us kind of do that correlation. Because if you are, were of a certain age in the fall of 2001, you remember, don't you? I do. I remember where I was. I remember getting the phone call from my mother-in-law. Smartphones weren't around in that day, so I had to get to a television. Right? Y'all remember those days? We had to get to a television, turn it on, and I did so maybe 10 minutes before I, in horror, like so many of the rest of you, watched live as that American Airlines flight crashed into the, the other tower, the World Trade Center. I, I watched it happen at the Pentagon and then later in, in a field in Pennsylvania. And we, we remember these pictures. And, and I got to tell you, the, the, the world that day did not come to an end, right? But as an American who had until that moment enjoyed the relative security and the sort of bubble that I had grown up in, it kind of felt like it, didn't it? It felt like it. And it must have felt that way to a lot of other people because I can remember churches suddenly filling up with people looking for answers. Well, in the disciples' minds, the destruction of Solomon's temple would have been that kind of cataclysmic event. At least in their minds, that, that kind of thing could scarcely occur unless it brought with it the very end of the age. And so Jesus responds to their shock in the following way. In verse 4, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. And what comes next in these series of verses is a description of at least two events rather than one. George Eldon Ladd, the, the premillennial scholar, calls this a, a prophetic foreshortening. And what, what he means by that is overlapping two events that are described in a single message. So you've got the soon coming destruction of Solomon's temple right here, and then you've got what that destruction is going to foreshadow, which is a greater destruction and a greater tribulation that's coming in the future. And what it makes this text so difficult sometimes to get our heads around is that we never quite know which one Jesus is talking about. Okay? And I have to wonder if by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there's not some intentionality in that. Because I'm not sure Jesus wants us answering all those questions. I think what he wants is for us to answer three questions. And so I'm going to try to do that today. Number one, what's going to happen? Number two, how will it affect God's people? And number three, what do we do? Pretty simple. So let's start with the first one. What's going to happen? And as we look at this, uh, this passage from the, the disciples' place in history and our own, let's try to look at both of them. And you look at the immediate fulfillment of so much here, it's truly stunning to note the accuracy of Jesus' predictions. There's six graphic descriptions here. Beginning with this, Jesus says there will be false teachers and false Christs. Verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. Then again in verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. 
Now, you can go to any good library, public, private, religious, and you can browse through the history of what's called Gnostic literature, written in the first century, and you're going to hear references, see references to multiple messianic pretenders in both the first century and the second century. Their views were, first of all, antithetical to the faith given by the apostles, and many professing Christians were led astray because of some kind of attraction to this. And we see the same thing today. You see it in official kind of cultic groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. You see it in national culture warriors and QAnon conspirators. You see it in liberal Christian groups that espouse Marxism as some kind of salvific answer to the end of the world. You see it in people, groups that excuse sexual immorality or even promote the prosperity gospel. And those are just a few. We can keep going. There's a long list of false teaching. There's a long list of false Christ's. And with the rise of that will come a second thing. Jesus said there will be constant conflict. And you, verse 6, will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. He spoke these words around 30 AD. It was around AD 40 when a war broke out. Caligula uh, started that war by attempting to erect a statue of himself in the temple at Jerusalem. And you, you, that probably didn't go over too well with our Jewish friends, as you can imagine. Romans and the Jews did not agree on much. But if you read both of their respective histories around this time, you will find one point of consensus. They would say, yeah, there, there was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of polarization. There was a lot of violence. And today, it, it seems kind of like that's being kind of rearing its ugly head again, doesn't it? At least in the West. I have not lived, in fact, and I was born in 1972. I have not lived, nor has any generation, I think, still alive, lived during a time when some conflict somewhere wasn't plaguing the world and having some kind of effect on our lives. We've never known a world, in fact, for the last 2,000 years, have we, that did not have some kind of significant conflict somewhere. And the same is true with natural disasters. There's not even a generation that passes after these words are spoken that a major earthquake struck Phrygia. That happened in A.D. 61. Pompeii, that famous story, it was leveled in A.D. 63. Antioch, where incidentally Matthew probably wrote this gospel some 20 years after these words were spoken, saw large city reshaping earthquakes in 37, in 42, and then in again in 115. So there's going to be war, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be false Christ, there's going to be false teaching, and, and thirdly, there's going to be false starts. Look at verse 8. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. Ladies, you ever have a false alarm when you were pregnant? Like up to the point that you woke dad up and you got that bag that you'd had packed and you make it to the ER and you're like, you can feel it and whatever goes on with you guys, I don't know, I don't even want to get into that, but... I, you know, you, you, whatever you feel physiologically and you walk into the ER and you're like, this is it. And 10 minutes later, the nursing staff goes, no, it isn't. You ever have that experience? Jesus says history is going to be a lot like that. There's going to be moments that make you wonder, is this, is this, is this the end? No, no, it's not. And so what you want to avoid, just throwing this in for free, is participating yourself or listening to people who have a cycle of always saying, this is going to be it, this is going to be that. It's going to happen before the end of 2020. Oh, now it's going to be 2021. Oh, now it's going to be, oh, shut up. All right? You've been getting this wrong over and over and over again. Your batting average is freaking zero. That's what Jesus is talking about. These are birth pangs. 
You, you're, we'll get to this later, but he said, you know, when the end comes, you're not going to question. You're going to know. Everybody's going to know. There's not going to be any debates about this. False starts, war, conflict, false teaching. And number four, separation by tribulation. Verse nine, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then, as we would expect, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And we got to pay some attention here because this, this is what Jesus is telling us. You will be tested, and many of you will fail that test. Now, that makes me shiver for the people I pastor and the people I love, for a community that I love, for, for people all over the world, and particularly all, all over this nation. When I compare these words, and just keep on, I love you guys. Now, some of you are going to get angry with me for saying this, but I love you. When I compare these words to the relatively minor inconveniences that we've had to endure over the last 18 months and the spastic, light-your-hair-on-fire way that so many Christians have reacted, and I read a text like this, they're going to deliver you up to tribulation. They're going to put you to death. We haven't experienced anything like that. And the result of that is you're going to fall away, and you may even betray your brothers and sisters. And then I watch the way Christians have reacted the last 18 months, and I'm like, what are you going to do when the real thing happens? we got to think about this. Because if we don't, if we're not careful, if we don't keep our eyes on the ball, the result, number five, is going to be spiritual deterioration. Verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Yeah, spiritually I'm going to... And then there's this contrast with this word. The one who endures to the end will be saved. You know what Jesus is saying there? People are going to get tired of suffering, and they're going to give up. That frightens me for you. People are going to get tired of the suffering. They're going to get tired of the conflict. They're going to get tired, and they're not going to cling to Jesus. They're going to fall away. They're going to, we call it deconstruct now, you know, on an individual level. I've, I've seen this. Somebody wants to sleep with somebody that the Lord doesn't want them sleeping with. And so what do they do? They deconstruct eventually, eventually. I'm just going to deconvert. I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to ask all these questions like, you know, What's happening? Then I'm going to get into the problem of evil. I'm going to get into legitimate questions, but then I'm going to make these, these ridiculous claims like nobody ever talks about this in the church. For about 2,000 years, there have been about 10,000 volumes written on that subject. Dummy, go to a library or ask one of us. We'll be glad to suffer with you and, and wrestle with you through the issues. You're not wrestling with the issues. You're being intellectually lazy because you want to sleep with somebody. You've been intellectually lazy because you're tired of hurting, because you're tired of what Jesus told you was part of the cost of following him. Don't get tired and give up. That's what I pray for you, that this would not happen to anybody at Covenant Church, that they would get tired of suffering and just give up. These words are prophetic. But Jesus is less interested in prophecy than he is in the perseverance of his people, which is why yet in the middle of all of this, and this is where the encouragement comes from, right? Wars, false starts, 
false teaching, spiritual deterioration, brothers and sisters that leave the faith and then betray their brothers and sisters. In the middle of all that, the forward progress of the gospel. Look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus put it this way to his disciples in Matthew 16. On this confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. On that confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. We are moving forward offensively. Of course, there's going to be resistance. Of course, there are going to be people call you names. Of course, there's going to be suffering and sickness and the kinds of things that all of us who are normal would rather live without. But Jesus told us that's a part of it. And if we will hang on and not get tired and not give up and continue to be faithful, we get to be a part of that tip of the spear that he's describing here. But let's be careful how we, how we interpret this. Because today, we, we speak of two groups of people when we talk about missions. We talk about unreached peoples. Now, those are folks in tribes and different nations around the world, and there are Christians among them, but there's no indigenous church, right? So if you go to, if you went, say, to Cameroon, actually there, you know, and you had an indigenous group there within Cameroon, and there are Christians there, but there's not a church that's a, literally a Cameroon, like not a Western church that one of us went over there and started, but a Cameroonian church with Cameroonian elders and deacons and Cameroonian understandings of how that church is governed, uh, then, then you, th those people are considered unreached. There's another group that we call unengaged. One example is the, the Tukang Besi Selatan of Indonesia. This is a tribe of 130,000 followers of Islam. They have no access to the Bible. They have no missionary to reach them, no indigenous churches, zero Christians among them. And brothers and sisters, it's tribes like that that are why this church gives $100,000 a year plus to global engagement. And we believe in the Great Commission but, but sometimes we get confused when we read words like Jesus is here and we start to think, well, wait a minute, does Jesus not come back until those people are reached? And then, then you have to develop a, a little more mature sense of history. Jesus, the, the truth is, while there are many tribes among whom there is presently no gospel witness, if you look at history, it demonstrates there is, as of right now, not a single ethnic group that at some point in history has not been reached with the gospel. And what we observe with clarity from the time of Jesus to our own is this. There's always going to be, in the midst of the worst that the world can throw at us, a faithful remnant of God's people who continue to move forward. And those are the people, brothers and sisters, on whose shoulders we need to stand. Be careful falling for people who promise you power, who promise you money, who promise you cultural influence. None of that is the objective. Faithfulness to Jesus is the objective. Faithfulness to his word, living a godly and quiet life. That's the goal of every bit of this. Every bit of this. And we see brothers and sisters who did it throughout history. When they faced the lions in the arena and looked back at Caesar and said, Jesus is Lord. When Rome itself fell, fell and the barbarian invasions introduced societal chaos into the entire Western world, Christians said, Jesus is Lord. Lord, when the black plague ravaged Europe, Christians ran toward it rather than away from it, saying, Jesus is 
Lord. When they were chased throughout the Middle East and throughout every age up until the present, there have been people, men and women of God, who have stood and said, Jesus is Lord. Jesus says, that's what will happen. This is what's coming. There's going to be a remnant. And the gospel will continue to move forward. And the gates of hell will not be able to stop it from happening. But my people need to be faithful. And in order for you to be faithful, you've got to have something other than a timeline. See, that's why he's telling his disciples this stuff. They and we want a timeline, don't we? How's this going to work out? What's going to happen? It's okay to have an opinion about that, but that's not the point. They want a timeline. We want a timeline. Jesus instead gives them and us a dose of reality that will characterize both their world and ours. Jesus told us 2,000 years ago that until he returns, there will never be an age in which his followers don't have to live with all of this. And we need to accept that and we need to endure it knowing this, that if we endure, we will eventually come out of it. The Lord will deliver us from it. That leads me to the second question. How will this affect God's people? And I think Jesus' answer here is to say it will affect us in three different ways. First off, in instability. Everything's not always going to work out. Sometimes you're not going to know. Sometimes the world is going to feel like it's being turned upside down, and there are no easy ways to fix it. He says in verse 17, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand, and some of you like me are going, yeah, I'm trying to, right? I'm trying to. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, he references Daniel, and, and, and to be precise, he's referencing Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. 167 B.C., Antiochus IV comes in, slaughters a pig on the altar in the temple. Most Jews understood that event to have fulfilled Daniel's prophecy, but Jesus seems to indicate here there's something more coming that's after the pattern of that. And then we see some level of what could have been a fulfillment of that later. Eusebius in 67 AD declared this prophecy fulfilled when the Jews fled persecution to the mountains of Pella. Jesus goes on. Verse 17, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. There are going to be times when calamity, Jesus says, is going to come on my people with such rapidity that you don't have time to even gather provisions. He continues in verse 19, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. It was a common experience for for pregnant women and winter travelers, those, both of those describe difficult mobility in the first century, being pregnant or traveling in winter. And when you're pregnant and traveling in winter, that's the worst. So he says, just, just pray that you can get where you need to get quickly. And then comes verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, who are the elect? Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. I mean really done it. Given them their lives, those days will be cut short. Now there's a teaching that's been around for about 190 years. <clears throat> I've talked about that, this teaching earlier in, in the passage, that there's going to be a, a catching up of the church prior to, to all of this and that God's people are going to escape. It's called the rapture. Tribulation, they say, is, is for unbelievers. It's not for believers. Now, 
I got to be honest with you, I, I hope they're right. Because I'm normal like you are. It's one of those areas where I'll admit I could be wrong. There are many colleagues of mine in the pastorate and in wider Christian academia who believe in what's called a pre-tribulational rapture. I don't, and I don't because of this text, among other things. Uh, the problem occurs in, in when, when in light of that doctrine, you start to focus on everything you're going to escape. That's the thing I'll warn you against. You don't have to agree with your pastor on this, but when, when, when your conclusion and your application to a belief in something like that is, well, we're not going to be here anyway, so it doesn't matter, you, there's just absolutely no way to make Jesus' word square with that attitude. You, you just can't do it. So, I, But even if you can make his word somehow square with a pre-tribulational scenario, there's no assurance that the Christian church will, will never have to deal with getting their bubble burst. Right? In fact, just the opposite. And we've, we've seen it throughout history. Did you know that the 20th century from 1900 to the year 2000 saw more people martyred, killed for their faith? Not jailed, not harassed, not told to take their Bible and put it in their locker, not murdered because they believed Jesus was Lord. You know, the number of people killed for that reason in the 20th century exceeded the number of all people killed for that reason in the first 19 centuries combined. Did you know that? That's the world we live in. Pray for the persecuted church. But more than that, I think we need to grasp something of their perspective. I've shared this story earlier in this series as well, that I was in India about 10 years ago training pastors. One of them was a guy named Ambrose, named after one of the early fathers of the church. We, we gathered around him and prayed because as he left his village about 150 miles northwest of where we were, Hindu fundamentalists had threatened to kill him and, and torture members of his church. He was going back. I have no idea what happened to Ambrose. But I think if he could hear my brothers and sisters here in the West talk about a future tribulation and say things like, I'm not going to be here, we don't have to worry about that, he might look at you like you were just a tad crazy. Because Jesus said, expect instability. We've experienced a taste of it in the last 18 months. And I love you, that's why I'm asking you this question. Are you seriously ready for more? Because it might be what Jesus calls you to. They say, well, this ain't encouraging, Pastor. Hey, I don't write the mail. I deliver it. If you want somebody that writes a happy song, there's plenty of prosperity churches. I guess you could go find one of those. But they're not going to tell you the truth, and you might end up in hell. This is the truth, directly from the lips of Jesus. Are we really ready for more? Instability will characterize the world. Jesus told us this. And because there will be instability, there will secondly be tempting substitutes. Look at verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, there is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. You notice, the, the, here's the practical application. Don't go following that idiot. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. There will be people who come along in the midst of an unstable world, and they're going to promise you a quick fix through money, through power, through pleasure, through cultural influence. And they will even sometimes be able to perform miracles to make you think they are legitimate. And so what you need is discernment so that you don't take that exit ramp. 
You need to stay on that straight and narrow road. Now, the good news is, in the midst of the stability, of the instability, and all these advertised exit signs, we got a better way. Go this way. Go this way. And now we're living in a world where, you know, because of the free market of ideas, you can take Jesus with you. Take Jesus with you into that nonsense. But there is a call to clarity. Look at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever they, don't, if they say he's over, if you have to debate, if you have to act, if you have to take a trip out into the desert or into some inner room to see whether or not this is true, it ain't true. Because when I come back, everybody's going to know and nobody's going to doubt. And then he says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's getting to be about deer season, so we know what that means here in West Virginia, right? When you see buzzards flying, somebody either shot one or hit one. First church I ever pastored, a guy walked up to me. He said, you want some deer meat? I said, I love venison. He brought me, he brought me out two or three pounds of deer meat. I said, man, thank you for that. I said, I said what'd you get him with, a bow or a rifle? He said, an F-150. This, this is the hard truth, though, right? As we move closer and closer to the end of the age, nowhere does God promise us protection from temporary persecution. Nowhere are we given some kind of strategy to save the culture. The calling is to endure. That's what's going to happen. This is how it affects God's people. So here's the, here's the third question. What do we do? What do we do? Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is that apocalyptic language I was talking about earlier. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Here's what you do. You continue to endure. You continue to obey. Whatever it costs you, you cling to Jesus and his word. Don't be taking those exit ramps. Don't be chasing after those, those tempting alternative messages. When things seem unclear, you cling to the clear because there's coming a day when those who have done this will look up and we will see our king come and he will silence every mouth and cause every knee to bow. And then... He will take us home. you got to believe that's actually going to happen in order to do all that other stuff. Okay? You can't be a German higher critic and write all the miracles out of the Bible and actually do what the Scriptures talk about doing here. you got to actually believe he's risen from the dead, which makes me wonder how many supposedly Bible-believing Christians don't, and they reflect it in the lives that they live because they're running around with their hair on fire. Endure. You must endure, and you must believe, okay? So, so here's the big, the big picture of, of Matthew 24. The point is not to say, I got it, right? I got, my, I got my arms wrapped around it. Look, I've been studying texts like this for 30 years. I don't have my arms around this. I don't have everything figured out. But I, I don't think that's the point. And when you miss the point, you end up, Lord only knows what. 
I mentioned that the other day. You know, it's the guy that's got all kinds of ammo and canned goods in his basement, and he's locked and loaded and also cheating on his wife and thinks he's ready for the second coming of Jesus. That's what that hermeneutic will get you, right? Is living morally, not loving your neighbor, no fear of God, but I got this figured out. I got it. I, got, I, know, what's, I know what's coming. It's why G.K. Chesterton said something almost a century ago that I think rings true. It is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head. I'm trying to grab every. I'm trying to understand everything. I mean, it is only the fool who tries to do that, and not unnaturally his head bursts. The wise man, I want you to hear that, is content to get his head inside the heavens. These are the things that we just don't know for sure, guys, but there are some things that we do. Get your head inside those heavens and be faithful until you see him. And when everything else passes away, you'll find out, and I will too, he's enough. He's more than enough. You know, near the, the end of World War II, the city of, the city of Warsaw in Poland was almost completely leveled, and according to one witness, the only skeletal structure left standing in that city was one wall of the Polish headquarters of the British and Foreign Bible Society. They distributed Bibles all over Europe. One wall left standing. So you got this rubble. There's no infrastructure. There's no clean water, electricity. There's, there's, no, there's no commerce. I mean, just, this city's leveled except for one wall. And the words engraved on that wall, visible to everybody who walked by, said this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I, I don't know what the future holds. There may come a day when you and I are literally called to live that truth. And that's what you got to ask yourself. Am I willing to lose it all? Is Jesus really the priority? Is he really the center of my life and the circumference of everything that I do? What if God's sovereign plan in history includes at some point suffering on my part like I have never known before? What if at some point in the future, God's sovereign plan? I had a, I had a colleague of mine who had his master's working on his PhD, resigned from a church because of some things going on at the top, and he just couldn't, his conscience wouldn't let him do it. And he took a job as a courier. This is back in the 1980s, so he's making about $5 an hour. And, and his company called him and said, we, we've got some, somebody put too much stuff in a dumpster and it won't dump. And we need you to go out there and clean it out. And so he's standing in the middle of that dumpster, angry, by his own testimony. He said, and I just started yelling at the Lord. Lord, I've got a master's degree. I'm working on a doctorate degree. I got a wife and I got four kids. And I'm out here in this dumpster cleaning this up. And I'm slinging to get the bugs off of me. And I'm picking up Lord only knows what. And I got greasy hands. I got sticky hands. I got smelly arms. And I don't know why you would put me in this. All I did was try to be faithful to you. That's all I've ever done. I said yes to your call. I left behind a career. I did all of that. And he said, God's, God spoke to me about as close to audibly as another person could speak. And he said to me, sometimes my will will require you being put in a dumpster and you won't know why. Do you trust me? The hope is not avoiding pain. The hope is that Jesus is greater than whatever pain you face. And I'm going to tell you something today. Not, not even because I have the experience to say it, because I don't, but because I believe this 
book. He is greater. He is greater. Come to him today. Come to him and be ready. Be ready for whatever transpires. Let's, let's bow together for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that even when we ask the wrong questions, you provide the right answers. Thank you that when we seek timelines, you give us challenges. You give us a dose of reality and you help us to see how it is that we need to respond in that reality. That Lord, the command to share the gospel and make disciples and love our neighbors and serve the least of these and to do everything that you've called us both <clears throat> individually and together as your body to do. They're not negotiable. They're not subject to, <clears throat> to the context that we're in or our ability to do certain things. But Lord, if we will endure to the end, we will be saved. And Lord, I, I pray today for encouragement, Father. I pray that that encouragement comes not by people waiting on whatever circumstances are in this room to change, but they begin to look beyond them and to know that the King is coming. Um, Father, I, I think about that every time I, I get ready to come out on stage and I see that, that bumper video that we play. One thing is certain. The King will return. And Lord, when we are facing our worst and when we are most discouraged, Remind us of that day and put such faith in our souls of that day that we will do right by you and by each other and endure unto the end. Father, we confess only your Holy Spirit can give any of us the power to do that. We do not have that ability on our own. Fill us with that ability, Lord. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.